Hi there, my name is Paddy Butler and this podcast is brought to you from Liberia, a bookshop by Second Home. This week, the brilliant Rose Cartwright interviews Michael Pollan, whose book, How to Change Your Mind, has been perhaps the surprise non-fiction success story of 2018. They discuss alternative medication such as microdosing and psilocybin, as well as trying to use language to describe the extraordinary experiences of a full-blown trip. Uh, But a couple of books to recommend related to the subject or on that subject. Behave by Robert Sapolsky, The Biology of Humans at Our our Best and Worst. The River of Consciousness by the much-loved and late Oliver Sacks. These posthumously published essays cover disparate subjects within the realm of neurology. Uh, Topics ranging from subjects like the creative self or sentience, the mental life of plants and worms. So there you go. But for now, let's go over and listen to Rose Cartwright interviewing Michael Pollan. I loved your book. Uh, I thought it was really beautifully written and it was very influential on me. Um, One of the things that I found most interesting about it was your uh, grapple with language and the challenge of trying to put into words experiences which are in some ways ineffable. Um, and I was wondering, what do you think it is about psychedelics that, that makes them so beyond words? Yeah, so it's often been said that all mystical experiences are ineffable. Uh, William James, the great American psychologist, made that point. Um, and you definitely have this feeling that you've experienced something that is beyond the reach of language. Uh, I just think it's an experience that we don't have words for. Uh, I asked one of the therapists or researchers I was interviewing about this phenomenon. And and this is before I tried to write about my own experiences, uh, Bill Richards. And he said, well, you know, I think of it this way. Imagine a caveman transported to London in 2019. And he sees, you know, uh, he sees the tube and he sees airplanes overhead and he sees people talking to these boxes on the side of their face. And, and he comes back to the cave How does he describe it? It was big, it was loud, it was weird. Um, He doesn't have the words for it. Um, We don't have, you know, as he put it, we don't have enough colors in the box of crayons Mm -hmm. to to convey this experience that so few people have had. I mean, our language is a product of general experience and this has been a pretty select experience. So I was very um, challenged by writing about this and figuring out a way to describe my own journeys without sounding like an idiot and or crazy because it it can sound that way and uh and that was the big challenge actually in the writing of the book was is when i get to that chapter where i go through the different uh i think it's called the travel log um figuring a way to talk about it because in some ways in some ways the language is there um you have these profound insights that are at the same time incredibly banal you know, the classic psychedelic insight on LSD is that love is the most important thing in the universe. Everything's connected. Everything is connected, right. So these are platitudes, and but they're also true. And so how do you get that across? Um, and we, we, you know, we have so much protective irony around us, you know, that we, we look at things through this very kind of ironic lens. And, 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 and I think we defend ourselves against strong, obvious feelings. And, or our ego does. So 
I found for me, the way to write about it was to be very candid about the problem and turn to the, turn to the reader at various points and say, look, I know this sounds like a cliche, mm -hmm. but think about it. What is a cliche? Where do they come from? Uh, isn't a platitude just a, a truth that's been drained of emotion by repetition? So I just decided I would kind of break the fourth wall and, and explain to my reader when I got to one of these points in the narrative that either sounded too obvious to be, you know, to, to be worthy of being in a book or sounded insane. Um, because I'm, I'm not just writing for psychonauts. Mm -hmm. To the contrary, I'm, I'm really trying to write for people who've never had this experience and give them some vicarious sense of what it is like. And um, so... You kind of have to drop the irony, right, and make yourself vulnerable in you those moments when you're trying to write. In, in, this, in a similar way that you make yourself vulnerable when you're taking psychedelics. Exactly. It's, it's very similar in a way. And if you're, if you're too concerned with self-protection or, or looking cool, like, forget it. And on psychedelics, it's like <laughs> you, you let it all hang out. Yeah. And you should do that when you're writing also. And you go back and edit it in various ways. But if you're not honest with yourself, if you're not willing to share emotion... It's not gonna. It's gonna be postured. It's gonna be. Uh, it's not gonna be authentic. Yeah. Um, so anyway, it was. It in the event, it ended up being the most fun I've ever had as a writer because once I had a voice I was comfortable with uh, to talk to the to talk about this, I was. Uh, you know, I'm a I'm a journalist. I, most of what I work on I has to be fact checkable. You know, it's in that tight box and. Um, here I was writing about the pure products of my imagination, mm -hmm. and and I imagine it's it's the way a novelist might feel. I mean, I, at least as I, I mean, I have friends who are novelists, and there's kind of a waking dream that they're writing down, that they're having, of the listening to voices and that kind of stuff. And it's a little like that. Mm -hmm. So it, I found it really liberating. Yeah. Was it was there a moment? Were there moments of discomfort though before you reached that point of liberation? Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. The, w did you cringe? Yeah, oh, I, I always so much, cringe. There was so much cringing, and and that's when I decided when I would like, well, I really was thinking about love and how important it is, and that I'm not I'm not paying enough attention to it, and I would write it down. I was like, <laughs> and then I realized, well, I'm going to write it down and then talk about the Ugh. yeah, yeah, <laughs> and um, and I think that worked. I mean, readers have to judge, obviously, but it worked for me. Um, when I, I had a, I did a, um, a guided psilocybin experience recently, and um, I have been quite cautious to try and narrativize it too quickly because every time I tell the story of what happened, I feel further away from it. Um, but I did. There was in the immediate aftermath when I was still very fuzzy and kind of coming down. I sort of wrote this phrase, which at the time like felt so profound and full of meaning, and I thought this is going to be a beacon throughout my life. I'm going to return this phrase, and then two <laughs> days later, I was like, "Oh my god, that is like a hallmark card." I'm so embarrassed. I was like, um, uh, "If I can do that, I can do anything." And you know, it may it may as well have been like a fridge magnet, but in that moment, it felt so real. Yeah. You felt um, you felt empowered. That yeah, you had done this risky thing, and it worked out. Yeah, yeah, that's so interesting. There's a famous story, it, it turns out to be slightly apocryphal, of uh, William James having a big experience on, I think it was nitrous oxide, which he experimented with. He also used mescaline, but didn't, didn't have very good experience. And he realized the secret of the universe uh, in the middle of his trip, and he wrote it down. And, uh, um, and then he looked at it the next morning, and it said, the smell of fried onions. <laughs> <laughs> which, you know, okay. Yeah, why not? Yeah. I mean... I can, I can, I can accept that. <laughs> <laughs> Would 
We have uh, in the in the in the West we have a sort of a general kind of squeamishness about mysticism and spirituality, and we don't really have a. And more in England, by the way, than other places. Oh, really? Yeah. Do, you, do you find that more than in the US even? Yeah. I, well, at least among the, the psychedelic researchers. Mm. A, a, an interesting phenomenon I noticed is that in America, the researchers often talk about a complete experience, a high-dose complete experience, as involving a mystical experience, or sometimes they say mystical-type experience. And I find the English researchers are a little allergic to that phrase. And they'll talk about ego dissolution mm -hmm. as the peak of the experience, or they'll use the term peak experience. And I think they're just kind of, well, they're scientists too, and they just don't like that, uh, that tinge of spirituality, mm -hmm. um, even though it is a spiritual experience. So ego dissolution sounds like psychology, you know, um, unitive consciousness and mystical experience, which is the same thing, mm -hmm. sounds a little more, yeah, mystical. So... But I think we're, I think they're just d different vocabularies for the same phenomenon. Mm -hmm. For anyone that might not know, what um, what do you mean when you say ego dissolution in the context of So ego dissolution is the sensation many people have on a high dose trip. Not always, but when they feel safe enough to really let go, you really have to surrender to this. Um, but it's the sense that yourself no longer exists, and um, this this voice in your head, this this thing you identify with as you, the I, um, I had an experience of watching it dissolve. Um, I, actually, in my case, it kind of burst into confetti, um, little post-it notes. And, that, and I knew that was me, and I, mm -hmm. I'd just been exploded, detonated. And then I looked out again, and I know I'm using the I now as the observer, and that's definitely a weird paradoxical thing about it. Um, and I saw myself, and it was recognizable as me, um, just spread out on the ground like a coat of paint. Mm -hmm. And the perspective from which I was observing the scene was not myself. It wasn't my usual self. And it was completely untroubled by what it was witnessing. It, and it's to this day, I don't know who that was or what that was. Objectively, it sounds uh, quite horrific, you know? Yeah, it, it should like be. Some, it's, it's like a death. Terminator. <laughs> it's a death. Um, but it didn't feel bad. I was totally fine with it. I was reconciled. And, and it ended up being quite ecstatic because when your ego dissolves, you become one with, I mean, the ego is kind of this, it, it is what, I mean, according to Freud, it, it defends us, it is our drive, it has a lot of adaptive value, it gets things done, it's, it evolved for a reason. Um, but it also is that voice in your head that's telling you you did wrong or you could do better or it's the ruminating voice, it's the, it's the worrying voice, it's the one, you know, thinking about what you have to do tomorrow or later today. Um, and it can torment us. And I think in people who are depressed or anxious, it does torment them. And, um, and the, so the insight when you see it dissolve and you don't die is that, oh, I'm, I'm not identical to that voice. I don't have to listen to it. It's not, it's not me or it's not all of me. It's only part of me. It's one figure in this drama of mm -hmm. everything that's going on in your head. And that's kind of liberating. Um, and for me, that was a big takeaway of psychedelics. And it appears to be for like a lot of the patients who are being treated uh, to escape the tyranny of the ego, even for a short period of time, uh, opens up possibilities, new belief systems, um, they're, they, they're not as confined by their beliefs as they were uh, before. Mm -hmm. 
It's interesting, isn't it? You mentioned the tyranny of the ego. I feel like uh, wrapped up in the psychedelics conversation is a kind of resurgence of some older ideas in psychology, which um, Western medicine kind of turned its back on in many ways, you know, the ego yeah. and the unconscious. Um, you know, I, I sort of was schooled in a, uh, a medicalized view of mental health that talks about, you know, CBT right. and anxiety and, and anything like resembling depth psychology is something that I was sort of schooled to, you know, yeah. to be a bit suspicious of. But I think it's I think it's really interesting now that the science is is starting to back that up. Yeah. So it's very interesting watching the return of the unconscious, although it's not used. I mean, think about behavioral economics. They're constantly talking about these unconscious biases we have. Right. Um, and if you ask them, and I've asked them, I say, well, aren't you talking about an unconscious? They really don't want to go there. So they, they don't actually, they just talk about we've got, you know, this mode of thinking and that mode of thinking. But one is unconscious and one is conscious. And um, uh, so I think it has come back. And, and I think psychedelics have helped it come back because they do, they're very, you know, we've, psychology, you know, the, the story is told often that, um, the early days of psychology, Freud and Jung, uh, were brainless. They were all about the mind. And then we, the pendulum swung way over the other way with behaviorism, and, and that was mindless. Mm. It was all about the brain. And neither is right. Um, these two things are inextricable, and, um, but we've tried to extricate them. And just because that's reductive science, you know, tries to simplify things. Um, and psychedelics kind of forces you to bring mind and brain back because, yes, obviously there's a brain effect going on and we see it, we see it on fMRI, um, but the mind effect appears to be what changes people and that you're administering not just a drug, not just a chemical, but an experience to people. And it's only when they have that experience, call it ego dissolution, mystical experience, that they change. And... Um, and that's a weird model, you know, but it kind of makes sense if you think about trauma, weirdly enough. I mean, there is a life experience that changes the brain and changes people's minds as well in a profound way, a negative one. Is it possible that a very positive and equally disruptive experience could change the mind in a positive direction? And that's a, that's a whole new paradigm. But I think it is an opportunity to bring mind and brain back together, certainly in our research. And that seems to be what's happening. And behaviorism is, you know, is kind of running out of gas. And what I think is quite enjoyable about the psychedelics conversation is that it's sort of reintroduced some of the poetry of those older psychoanalysts back into the conversation of mental right. health, like Jung especially and, and Freud. They've, these guys were amazing writers. Yeah. And... Um, I, after when I was trying to conceptualize my own psychedelic experience on mushrooms, on truffles, um, I hadn't really been able to visualize it um, and articulate it until I came across something that Jung wrote about when he wrote about the, the night sea journey. And he conceptualized going into the subconscious as this journey on a boat in a storm in the night. Um, and just simple stuff like that is, it, I feel like, uh, modern psychiatric literature just kind of abandons yeah. abandons that uh, that effort to to use art to help. No, you're back in the world of symbols and mm -hmm. archetypes, and um, and the fact is, and as comfortable as uncomfortable as this makes some neuroscientists feel, you can't penetrate consciousness without talking about experience, uh, phenomenology. What what you know? What is the lived experience? Uh, and then you correlate that with brain states. Fine, but you but. The storytelling is essential. 
if you're trying to capture consciousness. And, and certainly, it's the correlation of what people describe, the, the narratives of their journeys, that are very important in the, in the therapeutic use of these agents. And, um, and yes, you can correlate it with brain states in various ways, but finally, it is about experience, and you can't talk about consciousness without going there. Um, I wonder if we could bring alive one of your experiences for listeners who might not have read the book. Um, I, I, am I right in thinking it was uh, 5-MeO-DMT, which was the, the, the horror show? Yes, uh, that was my most negative. Yeah. <laughs> Can you tell us about that? Yeah, it's funny. I, I, I often ask audiences when I decide I'm going to read a little passage, do you want to hear a good trip or a bad <laughs> yeah. trip? And they always say, bad trip. It's like universal. Because people want to, you know, what's the worst case before I think about doing this? So for me, it was 5-MeO-DMT. This is um, the smoked venom of the Sonoran Desert Toad, which is just an amazing concept that anyone figured it out. You've got to give our, our species credit for that one. Um, you know, the, the venom by itself is toxic, and, uh, but if you smoke it, it has this effect. Um, no toads are harmed in the making of the psychedelic. Um, it basically, you gently, you can kind of milk them, and you, you sort of gently squeeze these glands on their side and on their legs onto a sheet of glass and let it dry, and it crystallizes, and it looks like brown sugar. This is besides the point, but are they farmed? or <laughs> what? <laughs> No. <Are they? laughs> we haven't gotten to that point. We, I'm sure, but well, maybe we have. The demand's I haven't heard not about quite it. there yet. No, the These are wild is toads that they're wild uh, toads. They only come out during the rainy season, and okay. then they, they live underground. Um, they were quite co common. I think they're less common now. They're big. They're as big as your hand. And um, this is presumably a defensive toxin, that they spray it in the eyes of a predator, and that kind of mm -hmm. disables them. Um, anyway, it's not, it's not of great antiquity. I mean, this was figured out in the 60s or 70s, believe it or not, although the same chemical is present in certain plants in South America, and there are snuffs uh, that are used, have been used for hundreds or thousands of years in, in the Amazon that contain the same chemical. So um, this woman from Mexico who's worked with it a lot and captures the toads and milks them um, was uh, in... in um, well, I'm, I'm being careful not to say what jurisdiction any of this stuff mm -hmm. happened, but she was near me, and uh, I was introduced to her by one of my sources, and she offered me this experience. And after, you know, hemming and hawing and going back and forth, and my ego saying, "Don't do that," um, I uh, I decided I would do it, and it was pretty horrifying. Um, so you take one puff uh, on this kind of vape vape situation and then you uh even before you exhale you're just gone and you fall back really? there's no exactly. there's no onset it's just like boom. Wow. and you feel like you've been strapped to the outside of a rocket that is rising and shuddering and going faster and faster and breaking through clouds and trying to get up into space and um but you feel the g-forces pulling down on your face and and your sense of self is instantly exploded you have no sense of self but then everything else goes too uh, matter time everything is just a storm of what felt like pure energy that was in my skull but extended outside of it also it was everything and i'm i do remember like i had my mantra of like trust surrender trust surrender and i kept trying to say that mm -hmm. and but it was useless and um and I couldn't think. It was too chaotic to have thoughts. Um, and it was uh, terrifying. And I mm -hmm. thought, 
oh my God, this is death, or this is the passage to death, because um, nothing exists anymore. The best thing about it is it only lasts about 10 minutes. Okay. Um, although it felt a lot longer. It right. felt like an eternity. But at a certain point, I start coming down, and I realize, wow, that's the same song I heard when I lie mm. down. <laughs> so we haven't, not a lot of time has gone by, and it was like a 10-minute song. Um, and then I very quickly felt reality reassemble. And this was ecstatic, actually. I mean, this was the payoff, you know, that I'm still alive, basically. You know, I had that gratitude. <laughs> and I felt, I reached down, I was lying down, and I had a blanket over me, and I reached down, and I felt my thighs, and I was like, oh, I have a body. How wow, great. You exist. I exist. And not only that, I mean, I, I, I felt the earth, I mean, I felt the floor. I, I felt time passing as I listened to this music. And I had this most, the most profound sense of gratitude I've ever had, you know, not just for being alive, which most of us have felt at some point or should have, um, but that there is anything and it's not nothing. Whoa, I think I could listen to that conversation many, many times. Such a natural storyteller as Michael Pollan. Kind of lulls you into a, into a trip in itself. Uh, do grab his book, How to Change Your Mind. Also, do check out Rose Cartwright's article in The Face magazine. Really interesting read on, you know, in similar territory, and same subject. As always, our full cultural program listings are on the website, www.secondhome.io. See you next time. <laughs>